I'm Austin, and this is Validated. Today I'm speaking with Ariel Seidman, CEO and co-founder of HiveMapper, a decentralized mapping project. Ariel and his team at HiveMapper are rethinking how a global map can be built. Essentially, anyone with a HiveMapper dash cam can passively collect street images while driving, and those images are automatically uploaded to HiveMapper's database, allowing drivers, mappers, to earn rewards. Most maps of the world are built by centralized entities like governments and tech companies. Even though navigation apps come pre-installed on our phones and cars for free, they cost a lot of time and money to get right. They're built with data from things like satellite imaging, survey data, city plans, and of course those funny looking Google Street View cars you've probably seen drive by. However, by leveraging blockchain technology and a decentralized, community-driven approach to collecting street imagery, HiveMapper aims to take on the same task with less upfront capital and greater equity for contributors at every level. HiveMapper says it can produce higher quality maps than centralized competitors with better time resolution and more granular data. This is perhaps the first tangible thesis that decentralized, community-owned infrastructure can produce a higher quality of service with more granular data than a centralized competitor. This may seem counterintuitive. How can thousands of people driving their cars compete with Google or Apple Maps? But no one in an office needs to plan and prioritize areas to map. With HiveMapper's model, the maps just happen. And the areas that are most important to the mappers, based on where they actually drive, are mapped the best. We might think of Google Maps as the app that tells us how to get from point A to point B, but maps aren't just for consumers. Uber, Yelp, TripAdvisor, Airbnb, and more quite literally depend on Maps' as a service to run their businesses, and you better believe Google and others charge for that. Given the corporate demand for mapping APIs and the cost of maintaining those centralized maps, the B2B Maps market is actually ripe for disruption by projects like HiveMapper. And this represents an evolution of Web3, where the technology is being used to facilitate fair and equitable coordination of human activities without the need for paperwork or a centralized accounting department. Let's dive in. Ariel, welcome to Validated. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to join you and talk about Solana, talk about mapping, and talk about crypto. So let's do it. Yeah, let's do it. So for listeners who haven't gone through our entire back catalog, this is our second episode on Decentralized Physical Infrastructure Networks, or DPIN. HiveMapper is one of the more interesting projects building in the DPIN space, and we're going to dive into what it is and how it works in a moment. But first, I want you to give us just a little bit of a refresher on this new category of blockchain application. Yeah, so the basic idea is that it's really hard and historically been very expensive to build these physical infrastructure projects, uh, whether that be you know massive wireless infrastructure, like things like AT&T and T-Mobile, mapping infrastructure, things like Google Maps, energy infrastructure, right? Like things like PG&E and so forth. And they usually have two sides, right? You have to build out the capabilities, right? So in a wireless network, you have to actually build out the, all the wireless towers, all the, all the hardware. And then you have to go and get the customers, right? And the same thing for maps. You have to go out and build the actual map itself, and then you go out and find the customers. And so the basic idea here is that historically, companies had to go raise billions and billions of dollars to go do that. And what this is basically doing is saying, wait, what if we actually kind of crowdsource, right? the creation of these networks where people who want to help and uh, effectively participate in the economics of these different infrastructure projects like wireless or like mapping are actually incentivized to do so 
by the distribution and rewarding of tokens. So if you effectively help build the network, then your economics are aligned with the network. And so it's a very, very powerful concept. And, uh, you know, I think obviously HiveMapper is at the forefront of that, but it's still very early. Yeah. You know, one of the pieces I've always found so interesting about DPIN is the initial promise of crypto was that it was going to remove middlemen from all sorts of interactions and was going to put users in direct control. And in doing that, it would have all these other ancillary economic benefits. I think we've largely succeeded at the first two, where we have successfully removed middlemen and we have successfully created one of the only things nowadays that you can actually own that is not a physical item. The the piece there, though, that hasn't always come is that there are usually economic trade-offs in using crypto. For example, if you're swapping tokens on Uniswap, in order for the privilege of operating on a decentralized network, you are paying very high trade fees in the form of gas fees to use the network. Even on Solana, if you're if you're building and you know doing something in the space, you're dealing with more slippage than you would get if you were trading on something like, you know, a, a completely centralized exchange platform. The thing that's so interesting about like Hive Mapper though is this is one of the rare cases where I don't think I see any downsides. Um, and I want to get into some of the product categories, but this is why I think a lot of us are so excited about this space of DPIN is that the space seems to have kind of come up overnight for folks who are sort of or not been in the DPIN side of the space for a while. And the, the benefits of it seem to be a really true embodying of like what the ethos of crypto really actually is. And so I want to get into some of the details of, of kind of how that works. But like, when did you first learn about decentralized physical infrastructure? Where is the idea of building something like HiveMapper on a blockchain come from versus trying to do this in like a very web two way? So I probably tried to build a map in, you know, more ways than anybody else on the face of this earth. And so I know a lot of the blind alleys and dead ends and all of the above that you face when you're actually going about trying to build a global map on the scale that we're trying to do here at HiveMapper. You know, the beautiful thing about HiveMapper, but more specifically about the, the path that we chose here in terms of doing it through this deep in or crypto incentive mechanism, is that it also addresses a lot of the issues in the mapping space historically, right? Where, you know, you take projects like Waze, you know, or for that matter, OpenStreetMap. And the story I always tell is like, look, with Waze, in addition to you and I driving around with a Waze app, effectively giving Waze all of our location data, right? And then sometimes hitting report and stuff like that. In addition to like, and that was obviously like tens of millions of people. But in addition to that, you had about 30,000 of these, what they refer to as map editors, okay? And these map editors would sit in front of their computer and they would very, very tediously edit a map. And, you know, there's a Wall Street Journal article all about them. And, you know, many of these people would spend weekends and nights and hours upon hours every single day doing this. And so when Waze ultimately sold to Google for like, what was it, like a billion two or a billion three, all the investors made out, right? All of the employees made out as they should have, right? They put a lot of effort into it, a lot of work into it. But those 30,000 map editors got nothing. Yeah. And so all of and without them, there's no map. There's no ways, period, right? And so what crypto really does is it aligns everyone's economic incentive, saying by helping build the map, right, you share in the economic incentives, right? So in my view, it really corrects a sin 
that has been pervasive in the mapping industry now for you know over a decade. There's a few interesting places that this kind of takes me. One is helium has a very similar origin story. Helium was like a six-year-old, semi-failing wireless mesh company that decided, actually, we can use blockchain technology. And then, you know, that's the whole story. Now, Helium is what it is today with, you know, million nodes around the world and over 10,000 5G network hotspots popping up. And at the same time, you know, that story of the early mappers not getting rewarded for this is very similar to, like, I remember when Uber went public and it was like, oh, man, imagine if, like, all of those drivers who've been driving for 10 years, if they had just even been earning $1,000 in equity a year, they would have been able to buy houses when Uber hit IPO. And instead they, you know, at, at, at best, I think they got like a $600 bonus. It's this sort of really interesting piece where the place that DeepIn seems to be coming in most strongly is where there are really fat Web2 margins that some company and some investors have gotten rich off of. And this sort of this new wave is is that the people actually building the networks should be the ones who actually see the upside from it. Yeah, absolutely. It's a sin, and I think it's a sin that a lot of people, quite frankly, in the Web 2.0 world are not open to admitting that all did not end well with Web 2.0, right? I mean, like, well, look, these are really important. These are really valuable. These are really, you know, useful services that have been created, things like Waze, things like Uber and so forth. But let's not pretend that it all worked out well for everybody. It worked out really well for some people, and less so for others. And I think we need to be open and candid about that such that when we start rebuilding a lot of these capabilities and service, that we do it in a more appropriate way, in a way that shares all the economics with the people who are actually doing the work, right? The, you know, the, these ways editors, it's not like they were just sitting there doing nothing, right? <laughs> like in front of these like very slow, tedious, you know, map editing tools and, and doing a lot of incredible work. I don't think they all realized, you know, how, and I've talked to some of them, how valuable in aggregate the work that they were actually doing is, right? They're like, oh, I'm just kind of editing, you know, my little neighborhood here, or my little city over here. It's really cool. I want to see it on the map. But if there's 30,000 people doing that for all the cities, you know, for all the major cities in the world, that that all of a sudden becomes really, really valuable. And I think like now they've kind of connected the dots and they're like, wow, shit, you know, that's super important and super valuable. You know, it's funny. I was thinking about this, like this piece I read years ago, and I think Harper's that was talking about this concept of slowly stolen labor, and that the self checkout system at Whole Foods or at CVS is a form of stolen labor. And what they're doing is they're offloading the work of running the grocery store onto the consumer. And you don't really care, right? You're like, ah, eh, whatever. I can bag some groceries. Um, but in aggregate, that ends up saving the company a percentage. And 1% over the volume of an organization like that is huge in terms of its financial savings. And so this is super interesting to kind of look at this. So I, I want to get into some of the specifics both of, of HiveMapper itself and how it works, but also kind of that, that market space. You know, I'm of the Wikipedia generation, and those of you who follow me on Twitter know I've had my run-ins with the Wikipedia crowd. But like OpenStreetMaps was always one of those programs for me that like it seemed like it was such a great idea. Right, that like we could actually have community-owned mappings, but they never really took off on the scale that that we were looking for. I'd love to kind of like, you know, hear a little bit of your journey into like why mapping is something that you sort of were passionate about, 
And then sort of that transition in not necessarily like the mechanics of how we got from a Web 2 map to Hive Mapper, but like what about the dynamics of building Hive Mapper in Web 3 make it work, unlike a lot of the other sort of more open community mapping initiatives before? Okay, so I will end with addressing the question about OpenStreetMap, but before that, maybe I'll provide a little bit of context in terms of Hive Mapper, all the different types of mapping so folks you know who are listening today have at least mapping 101. So there's a couple different approaches to building maps. Obviously there's Google Maps. That is, you know, look, they run their own Google Street View cars. So they buy their Google Street View cars, you know, roughly half a million dollars each all in. You know, they decide where they go at any given point in time. They have, you know, airplanes and satellites. So they're collecting, processing, and then ultimately building products. Uh, you know, so basically the entire pipeline from beginning to end, they own and they manage that end to end. Um, there are two primary end users of mapping products. There's you and I, right? You go, you open up your iPhone, your Android device, you pull up Google Maps, you go to your desktop, you pull up Google Maps, and you're searching for, I got to get to the airport, what's the traffic like? I'm looking for a pizza shop, all that kind of stuff, right? So that's one. That's a large business, right? Primarily advertising now more and more transaction-related stuff, like you go book uh, an Uber, a Lyft car through Google Maps, they're taking a transaction cut off of that. You're doing order ahead on food, they're taking a transaction cut of that. And then there's mapping APIs that they sell to businesses. So there's about 4 million businesses that integrate Google Maps in a variety of ways into their products. So if you decided one day, I hate Google Maps and I'm never gonna use Google Maps anymore, you are still using Google Maps, whether you realize it or not, throughout your day. You go open up Uber, that's Google Maps. You open up Yelp, you go to TripAdvisor, uh, that, that, that's, that's Google Maps. Uh, you go to a government website, that's Google Maps, right? And they pay for that. And Google just continues to raise the price every single year because they can. So that's a very, very large business. And that is the business that HiveMapper is primarily focused on and attacking, right? We're going after the businesses who are paying this. The other approach is OpenStreetMap, right? That is fully crowdsourced. They're not running their own collection though, right? What do I mean by that? They're relying on the donation of imagery from satellite companies, from street level cameras and all that kind of stuff. And then the map editors that form OpenStreetMap are going into OpenStreetMap and then relying upon that imagery that's been collected by another organization and then editing, you know, okay, that's a one-way street, that's a two-way street, and all that kind of information. The problem with that, there's a lot of problems with that, but one of the big, big problems with that is the imagery that the map editors are using is not fresh, right? Because look, if you're a company and you're there to make money, you're not gonna donate your best stuff to OpenStreetMap, you're gonna donate the stuff that's like nine months old, 12 months old, 18 months old, right? And so that, that that's happening all over, and that's a big problem with OpenStreetMap. HiveMapper's taking the approach that we're going to both do collection, right? So in other words, we have this dash cam, you install this dash cam, you just drive around like you normally do, and we're also going to do the processing. Because those two steps in terms of building the map are very symbiotic, right? The map needs to know, I need more coverage here, right? I need more cameras in that location versus that location, right? And then the map also has to have consistent imagery coming in from all these different dash cams. If you're dealing with like, you know, this version of iPhone, that version of Android, it has different GPS uh, positional accuracy, it has different imagery. Ultimately, your ability to actually generate a high quality map is dramatically diminished 
because you're just dealing with all these different sensors of all these different types and all these different positional accuracy. So we've taken the approach of saying, look, the dash cam provides us with a really, really high consistent positional accuracy and also very high quality and consistent imagery, right? So it doesn't matter where this dash cam is, it can be in Los Angeles or Lagos, Nigeria, or, or, or London or wherever, we have consistency of all these different sensors that are out there collecting data. And then we said, okay, look, we, we think it's also appropriate, and we talked a little bit about this, that these people should earn for the work that they're doing, right? And they should earn Honey Token. And if HiveMapper built a really awesome global map that many, many billions of businesses are using, that you should share in the economics of that because you help make that happen. If we can get a little, little bit more OpenStreetMap, I think they've kind of gone off. They kind of lost the plot a couple of years, in my opinion. And they're, they're trying to fix it. We'll see if they're able to fix some of the underlying issues in that organization. But look, even with that said, OpenStreetMap is used you know, by very large organizations, including Amazon, and they, they don't have to pay for it, right? And yeah. so like, hence, like one of the big issues that we're seeing is like, all of that work that the OpenStreetMap editors are doing is being monetized by very large organizations, very profitable organizations, and none of that is flowing back to the people who actually make that happen. One of the things that's unique about DeepN is that the hardware is the infrastructure. It's not just computers running software, and that means where the hardware is physically located in the world actually matters. Like, even in the days of, like, very custom Bitcoin mining rigs and stuff like that. Fundamentally, it's off-the-shelf components that you can rack mount somewhere. And yes, that somewhere might be, you know, the middle of Kazakhstan to get cheap electricity. But like, it's a fairly standard operation. If you're dealing with, you know, running a Solana validator, there's over 230 different data centers all over the world people run Solana validators in. If all of your dash cams are in New York City, A, you need to build those dash cams, ship them to people, get them into people's cars. But your coverage map would be, strictly speaking, just New York City. And so I want to talk a little bit about that logistics problem, both of like, the one thing I know about startups, you should never do hardware. Yeah. And so you've picked the two hardest categories to do, a crypto startup and a hardware startup. And a mapping startup. And a mapping startup. <laughs> I always joke with people, I was like, look, if you want to join like a marketing analytics company, just wait a mother month, you know, and boom, there you go. And tomorrow there's going to be an AI marketing analytics company and a Salesforce automation AI company. I was like, but maps, like, you know, serious teams focused on maps that are really trying to build out a global map. Those don't come around very often uh, because it is hard, right? Like and 98% of the hard part of building maps is data. Right. And that does ultimately flow back to the dash cam itself and the hardware. So at first we started using a third party dash cam, but we started to see issues. Right. Um, we also tried it with iPhone and Android devices. Right. And so there's you know, a fun story where we, we're like, OK, we're going to do iPhones and Android devices. And now you can start collecting and people started mounting them on their front windshield within a day. People are like, this does not work. I'm driving down Highway 5 in California in September, and the thing is overheating, and I got like 20 minutes worth of collection, right? And then the people in like Phoenix are like, it took me five minutes, <laughs> you know? I was wondering why the dash cam is kind of chunky, and it's just thermal management. Exactly, thermal. It has a huge heat sink in the back. You have to think about this problem. 
So we were using a third-party dash cam. We tried iPhones, that didn't work. We tried Androids, that didn't work. We tried a third-party dash cam. It worked from the perspective of people were able to collect, but then people tried to spoof us, right? Because they're like, oh, I'm getting rewarded for this? Awesome, okay. And oh, by the way, I'm getting rewarded more if I drive in LA versus this other region. Oh, I'm gonna like create a spoof that I like as though I'm driving in LA. So we got spoofed a lot. And then the experience of transferring the data, like literally pulling the SD card out of the dash cam and then uploading it was very tedious. And so we had to solve A, the location verification problem, B, the data transfer problem, and then C, most dash cams that you purchase are not intended for mapping. They're really intended for insurance and security purposes. And so the quality of the imagery wasn't what we wanted from a mapping perspective. So we're like, okay, great. We're going to go build our own dash cam. We built not the one that we're selling today, but basically a prior generation. Yeah. And that prior generation, I mean, the, it was the ugliest thing that you could ever imagine. <laughs> <laughs> but we actually had a contract for it. For the, so there was a customer before we raised financing that wanted that dash cam and effectively paid us a little bit of cash to like go build it for or go build a prototype, I should say. So we had the learnings from that dash cam that were funded by a customer that then we took into ultimately the dash cam that we have today, right? So it wasn't just like we were jumping directly into the dash cam that you see today. There was probably like another nine to 12 months of learnings of this kind of prototype version that we built, you know, for a, a revenue generating customer. It's funny hearing you talk about this because the way you're describing this and a lot of the process of getting this thing started sounds like any old consumer hardware software company, right? Like it's a very different tenor of conversation that I have with like a DeFi protocol founder or something along those lines. So for you, where is the line between like, this is a hardware software mapping project and this is a blockchain project? What parts of HiveMapper do you view as something that is like a very traditional venture-backed company that's like pushing the bounds of what's possible and building decent like mapping systems and what part of it is like a web3 decentralized protocol yeah i mean look if you, if you look at the team right now at hive mapper i would say 95 percent of our energy our time our focus is spent on hardware mapping technologies processing issues right pushing how do we extract better data out of this, right? How do we ensure that that speed limit sign is positioned a couple of centimeters better? Talking to customers, right? Like, what would you like to see in our APIs? You know, thinking about coverage and how do we get more coverage in that region versus this region, et cetera. And quite frankly, I think this is due to the fact that we're building on top of Solana. We didn't have to build out all the blockchain technologies, right? I've talked to the team at Helium before they moved over to Solana a lot of their engineering resources were wrapped up in all the blockchain technologies, right? And so because we're able to work on top of this, you know, fairly mature platform now, we just don't have to spend a lot of time on the underlying blockchain technologies, which it enables us, and I think you're hearing this in, in our conversation, for me to spend most of my time on what do customers really care about, right? I fundamentally have two customers, like the contributors, how do I make their lives easier and better and more delightful? And then how do I make, produce the data that is incredibly high quality and, and incredibly fresh and, and great coverage for customers? Yeah, I want to talk about that concept of who your customers are a little bit. Because, you know, normally if someone is into crypto and they're like, oh, wait, there's this cool new project coming out, I'm going to buy some tokens. 
right? And they buy those tokens, and there's an idea there that like maybe they go up, maybe they go down, but fundamentally it's a liquid asset. A dash cam is different. This is a, a physical piece of hardware that you're shelling out several hundred dollars to buy that then you put in your car, and you sort of say like, well, I, I guess I hope it makes me money. I don't know if it's going to make me money. And at the same time, like, we're in the United States. There's limited ways you can market expected return on any sort of product nowadays, let alone something that's, you know, related to the crypto industry. How do you actually think about those conversations, especially the early ones with folks to convince them to shell out a few hundred bucks and join this decentralized mapping project? Yeah. So I think there's a couple of different customers, right, from the perspective of the people who are out there mapping and driving around the world. And I think our job is to build a really high quality dash cam that is incredibly easy to set up, right? Five minutes to set up. And then day to day, you don't really think about it very much, right? It's just there. It's doing its thing. You got to drive anyways. You go from point A to point B to point C because you got to pick up the kids. You got to drop somebody off at the airport. You're running some errands, whatever it is. We want that dash cam to just be there in the background doing its thing, right? With minimal intervention from you. And so that's that's where we start, right? Because then if you say, okay, well, you're an Uber driver, okay? Uber drivers are actually very sensitive to like if they get into a car crash and it's not their fault, right? They want evidence of that because otherwise their insurance prices are going to rocket up. And if their insurance prices rocket up, that's coming out of their bottom line, right? And so if this device can help them in that regard, that's advantageous to them, right? And then the third thing is we try to make it fun. What do I mean by that is, and you hear this a lot, right? Like even those people who are coming in for crypto, they say, wow, this is awesome. They look at the app at the end of the week or the end of the day. They're like, I mapped this entire area, right? That's cool. Like the map lights up. It shows them everything they did. And a lot of people now are being like, look, if I actually drove, but I didn't drive, you know, like with the, I, I took my wife's car, whatever it is it felt like I didn't accomplish anything, right? (laughs) Which means it's like it's giving folks a sense of purpose, right? Like, hey, I'm actually building something that is useful to all the people in my city. And it's giving me a sense of accomplishment, that that drive is actually accomplishing something beyond just like I'm going to pick up my dry cleaner or whatever it is. Yeah. I want to talk a little bit about that data that comes off the camera and is sort of uploaded to these systems. Normally in a blockchain the data is not the proprietary part. The data is the part that's totally open, accessible by anyone, and it's the tokens that are actually like the secret sauce here. But from a mapping perspective, part of the end goal here is that there are consumer customers, people who are not just producers of maps, but people who are saying, you know, maybe I don't need to buy the Google Maps API and put a Street View thing on the web on my real estate listing. Maybe I can integrate HiveMapper instead. But OpenStreets is free. Google is not. HiveMapper, in order for the economics of the network to work out, someone has to be paying at at some point. So how do you think about both the ownership structure of that data and price gating access to it? Yeah. So if you go out and buy a dash cam, you can, if you want, you can store all the imagery that is being collected locally onto the dash cam. And that's yours. And you could do whatever you want with it. You know, the dash cam saw some pretty sunset in the Grand Canyon and you want to like go and take that images and go resell it or turn it into an NFT. That's all yours. And so you can do whatever you want with it. In addition to that, we are also selecting certain frames as you drive that we need for the purposes of mapping. All those, like you said, ultimately move up 
and get transferred to the cloud where there are a couple things happening. Actually, let me back up there a little bit. In the dash cam itself and or your phone, so effectively at the edge, we're doing a whole bunch of processing. So privacy masking, so all the like removing people's faces, license plates, all that kind of information, and also extracting out objects. What do I mean by that? That means uh, that's a 35 mile per hour speed limit sign. It's on the corner of, you know, 4th and Main Street. It's, you know, looking southbound and it's for all the traffic that's headed northbound, right? And oh, by the way, it's like, you know, uh, 12 feet tall, all that kind of information, right? That's the really valuable stuff, right? The more that we can do that at the edge, A, the more cost effective it is, right? And then the less data that has to be transferred because maybe you don't even have to transfer all the imagery up. But at the end of the day, you're correct, which is all that data is ultimately forming a map. And then customers have to pay a fee, a licensing fee to access that data. And that is really where the rubber hits the road in terms of, is this data valuable and how much are people willing to pay for it? So who are the customers who are paying for this? By the way, it, most of the customers that we deal with already have people and processes and systems in place to go out and buy this kind of data. Like if you show up at FedEx, this is their business, right? They run a bunch of trucks and what actually manages those trucks fundamentally sits on a map, right? The same thing for Uber, right? Yeah. Uber is a bunch of cars running around on a map. So any logistics company, any sort of mobility company, their operating system is map and map data. And if that's bad, that, that business just doesn't work. You were talking about object extraction before, and this is a place I, th I really want to get into because part of the main advantage of HiveMapper is that it has time sequence data associated with locations in a way that no other system does, right? The Google Street View car, even if you live in San Francisco, probably goes down your street at once most every 18 months. But if you have HiveMapper data, you have time sequence data potentially twice a day, depending on the road, depending on who's driving it, uh, even if it's just one person going to work and back. At the same time, a lot of these sort of geospatial software systems that are largely just used by the military at this point, they use that same idea of time sequence data and object tracking to do things like allow an operator to go back in time and replay the location of where a car that was suspicious six hours in the future, what it was doing six hours previously on the system. That's obviously a military application of this technology or a law enforcement application. On the back end, are you guys kind of doing the same type of thing where when my camera takes a picture of a specific street sign, that street sign is like object identified in a database somewhere? And it's not like there's a 35 mile an hour street sign here. It's like, oh, someone put graffiti on the street sign that we already know exists. Yeah, 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 yeah. So there's billions upon billions of objects, right? I mean, yes. just look around you. Stop signs, speed limit signs, yield signs, the create. Please you know, don't no, count the no objects. Writing. We'll be here forever. Yeah, I know. We'll count a lot of times. <laughs> but but th then you explode that out by country, right? And they're all a little bit different by country. Even the United States are a little bit different by state and so forth. So yeah. Fundamentally, there's a lot of objects there and they're changing, right? Speed limits change, stop sign chains, all the construction issues, et cetera. So yes, we are keeping track of all that information. That's the really hard part about maps. Doing it once, like yeah. that, if someone came to me and said, hey, Ariel, map the world once, you know, on a scale of one to 10, it's like maybe a problem, you know, maybe, maybe it's six for me. But maintaining freshness at a level that is even much fresher than Google, which I don't think is quite fresh, 
is really hard. And so that is the the piece that we solve in the, you know, this approach where it's like, well, look, we're not driving these massive expensive cars, right? And so yes, a lot of people ask me this, like the, the camera on a Google Street View car is a better camera than ours, period, full stop. Like, <laughs> But we see that same location many, 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 many times more frequently than Google Street View, right? So we have an actual better understanding of that location because we're seeing it not every 18 months, we're seeing it maybe every couple of weeks, right? And so we're not being obstructed by a bus that's in the way, bad lighting, right? We're starting to see those changes accumulate. And so we have a much better map and a much better understanding of that location just because we're seeing it that much more frequently than Google Review does. The frequency piece here is also interesting from the perspective of an incentive structure. Like if I take the same road to work every day, I can see a world where HiveMapper actually says, hey, if you take this route instead of the one you usually take, we'll give you a few extra tokens because that road is less well mapped. I can imagine this could even extend to a corporate use case where some entity is like, I want to use HiveMapper to sponsor additional driving on this or that route because getting a full time sequence imaging set is a real value to that specific business. I mean, we're, yeah, we yeah, we already see that from customers. Like that is like one of the first questions they ask, which is, you know, can I task it or can I put bounties into specific locations and encourage people to go there? And so, you know, absolutely. Like I worked at Yahoo Maps back in the day and people would come to us and be like, oh, we want more coverage here. We want more coverage there. It's like, look, like unless you're willing to pay like a ridiculous amount of money, that's just not interesting to us. You know, and the same thing is true at Google Maps. You can't just walk up to a Google Maps salesperson or a product manager and say like, I want coverage in this area or I want coverage in that area. They, they just like will not listen to you for good reason, by the way. <laughs> With us, that is definitely something that we will add, which is like, hey, you know, I want to do API calls for these 5,000 locations. And by the way, I'm willing to pay a little bit extra, right, for even fresher data if you don't have it within the last month or the last week or whatever it is. So you talked a little bit about that there were a few different ways for folks to contribute. The most obvious is I get a dash cam, I put it in my car, I drive a bunch, it records data. But you also have a trainer's component to this too, right? Yeah. So we just launched this actually last month, not even like three weeks ago, four weeks ago. It was pretty cool. So the basic idea is that once we're training our AI system, right, to identify all these objects, okay, that's a 35 mile per hour speed limit sign, and then properly position the object, okay, this is at third and uh, on, on the corner of 5th and Main Street as an example. The map AI trainers are kind of these sets of games that you can go. So you just go to hypeapper.com backslash trainers. They're very discrete games that you're basically confirming or telling the AI, hey, you got it wrong, right? And so that training feedback is then improving the AI. So you literally go to the games. You say, okay, I want to do the speed limit sign game, okay? We show you a sign. You tell us what the speed limit sign is, 35 mile, 55 mile per hour, whatever it is. And so that's helping us train our AI, right? Where we say, okay, we think this is positioned over here. Is that accurate? Based upon you looking at the imagery, you looking at other sources of data, is that accurate? And so that, you don't need a car, you don't need a dash cam, you just open up your computer anywhere in the world, you can basically be training the next generation of map AI. What do you consider to be in scope and out of scope for HiveMapper? 
We've seen an explosion of geospatial mapping of everything from air quality to weather modeling to route optimizations. But if you go back 15 years ago, something like street view, 3D modeling of buildings and sort of restaurants near me were all out of scope for consumer mapping. And now these are all features of modern mapping applications. So where does HiveMapper draw that line? Broadly speaking, we're very focused on navigation, right? We're less interested in, hey, I'm doing weather modeling, right? And so when you're doing weather modeling, you obviously need to know the terrain, the geography, you know, clouds interacting with the geography, all, all that kind of stuff. So navigation, why navigation? Because A, people really care about how long it takes them to get to point A to point B, right? Time is of essence, and you're willing to pay a little bit extra for, okay, if Pepsi could deliver a million dollars worth of goods on a product in six hours versus six and a half hours, that, that's real money for them. So that's one component of it. The other component is safety, right? So today, most map data is used by human beings, right? There's 2 billion plus users every single day that use maps. There's you know millions of businesses that use maps, um, and then obviously all their consumers. Um, but now cars are integrating map data directly into the car. So as a small example, something like the European Union, every new car that comes off the car assembly line starting January 1 of next year will have to have speed limit data integrated directly into the car, right? So where's that speed limit data coming from? Well, it's coming from mapping companies, right? That's just the beginning. What you're seeing now is level one autonomy or ADAS, level two ADAS systems. So you still need a driver. You know, Ford has their version, GM has their version, et cetera. All of that is very much fed by map data, right? It needs to understand how do I get on the highway? How do I get off the highway? How many lanes are there? All of that very, very detailed, precise, and fresh data fundamentally comes from a map. And so that really opens up a new market for us is that now these maps are not just serving human beings, they're serving cars that are making decisions based upon this map data. And there's like and there's like two billion cars. <laughs> yeah, I wanna talk about this component because I have suspected for a while that Google's relentless drive to get Android Auto into every new EV coming off the line was not just related to the fact that like, more things running Google Maps or Waze gives them like relative traffic data, but these EVs are loaded with sensors, especially when we're talking about self-driving cars. I mean, even a non-self-driving car nowadays, you've got a forward camera, you've got a backup camera, you've got wing mirror cameras on expensive cars nowadays, and that the cars actually are in a place where they could become something where for the car companies, they can now sell data coming off of those cars directly to something like Google. Do you see that as like a competitive future for HiveMapper that like eventually you're going to be competing with the automakers deals that they've signed the same way that Google pays Apple a bunch of money to be the default search engine that, you know, Google is going to pay GM for the data that comes off of the cameras? Yeah. You know, I guess the big joke in the mapping world is that every car company thinks that they should have built Waze and they should have built Google Maps. And, you know, I think they come from the same position, which is like, wait, we have all the data. That's partially true. And what I mean by that is certain car manufacturers have very good data in certain geographies, right? So obviously the European car manufacturers are going to have very good data in Europe. The American car companies are going to have very good data in the U.S. and so on and so on. There is no one single car company 
that has truly a global fo a footprint. So if you want to build a global map on the like of Waze or Google Maps, you're going to have to do deals with other car companies if you're a car company. And that fundamentally means that you're doing a deal with your competitor. And that all of a sudden gets very, very tricky for them. And so that's why I think that ultimately it breaks down. The other part about this is that if you think about what the business model drives the company, it drives the products. They fundamentally don't care. And, and in fact, they would prefer this. Like if Tesla could sell all 20 million cars in California, that would be ideal for them, right? You're dealing like with one jurisdiction, one set of laws, you know, much simpler, but they can't sell 20 million cars in California. So they have to go global, right? Or they have to like sell them all over, right? The coast, the East Coast, you know, UK, Paris, whatever it is. And so that's why I think that, yes, there will be certain car companies that have very good data in certain regions, but no one single car manufacturer will actually be able to do global scale. So I do think there will be like this partnership opportunities and some competition kind of blended in as well. Do you think you'd ever do a deal? Uh, do I think that HiveMap would ever do a, do a deal with a car manufacturer? Um, yeah. I mean, like there will be a, there'll definitely be a customer at some point for us. Um, oh, I mean on the data provider side. This is the thing I think is so interesting because, you know, obviously you guys are certifying what cameras are usable in HiveMapper, right? And one of the cameras you could certify would be the cameras in a Tesla or the cameras in some other self-driving car. Is that an area that you would ever sort of consider playing in? Or or this is, I'm trying to tease out a little bit of what that boundary between Web 2 and Web 3 is. Because for a Web 2 company, I think the answer would be certainly. And for something like the Solana Foundation, we would never say like, oh, we're going to do a, uh, I can't think of a great analogy, but a, we're, we're going to do a partnership with T-Mobile to zero rate all of the data that's used on the Solana network. Whereas like a video streaming service they do that all the time. Like in your mind, is is HiveMapper something that would ever engage in those sort of like commercial partnerships, or are you really focused on sort of that like additional hardware that gets added to any vehicle on the road? I think it'll always be both. You know, I think it will never be one or the other. But yeah, like I think the the type of partnerships in terms of data provider to us that would be interesting more so than let's say. Uh, a Porsche, you know, or um, a Ford even for that matter would be like commercial vehicles, like people who uh. build delivery trucks for Amazon and FedEx and trucks and all that kind of stuff. The reason is because A, they're on the road a lot more, B, they're a little bit taller and that vantage point is very, very helpful. And then C, they go to different parts of the city that are really hard to get to. Like a Volvo isn't going into like all these like nooks and crannies and industrial areas and all that kind of stuff. Whereas delivery trucks for Amazon and FedEx and garbage trucks for that matter are. And so I think that's that's more interesting to us is the commercial vehicles than the, the consumer vehicles. This is the piece I get back to that I think is so fascinating about the whole deep in space is it blurs some of the lines between what we think of as Web3 and what actually might be the real successful evolution of Web3 moving forwards, where, you know, in a DeFi protocol or sort of something that is like fully on-chain Web3, the decisions around something like that would rely on sort of protocol governance and lots of these other areas. But in some ways, you know, what HiveMapper is doing is it is using blockchain technology to make a more fair and equitable Web2 business. Do you think that's a fair statement? Yeah, 100%, a 1,000%. Right, so that's like kind of a driving conversation internally. 
so let's just say for argument's sake, um, and uh, just be clear, like we're not having conversations with somebody like FedEx right now. But like if FedEx were to say, okay, boom, like we're going to put this on whatever, 10,000 vehicles, and it's going to generate this amount of data, um, and we're going to earn X amount of honey, what they could do is they could then turn around and say, okay, great. I've earned now, I'm just making this number up, you know, 10 million honey this year, this month, whatever it is, and then use that honey to effectively use data from the mapping network, Right. And so for them, you know, depending upon how much data they're using, it could actually be a net zero. In other words, by contributing to the network, I'm also taking from the network. And some of that data will be my own data that I collected, right? Some of it may not be, but I don't really care, right? Um, like I'm just after the data, I'm trying to get to a right answer in terms of like, where should my trucks go? Where shouldn't they go? What are the issues I'm dealing with? Sometimes it'll be my truck and sometimes it'll be somebody else's. I don't care. I get to the right answer. That helps me move my business forward. Um, but at the end, like they could actually dramatically reduce their costs if they spent the time and energy to then go deploy the dash cam on the other side to provide data to the network. I mean, I think that we're still, I mean, this where this is really when we get into like regulation and all that kind of stuff, is I don't yet think major corporations like FedEx are yet at the point where they would be willing to do that. It's not even that there's regulatory issues, but I think there's just fear that is driving a lot of those conversations. So they, they would turn around and be like, you know, look, I mean, we've had this already today. Like a lot of customers who buy data from us, they don't, they don't know what crypto is, right? I mean, obviously they know what crypto is, but they don't know the details of honey and all that, nor do they really care. I mean, they're just like, do you have the data? Is it high coverage? Is it, you know, good quality? Is it fresh? And what's the cost? And I think that's obviously the conversation that's the most important thing to them. Uh, I mean, some of them are curious about the crypto type of stuff, but you know, when we send them an invoice for the contract, it's all in US dollars and it's just a normal, regular contract. Related to that, one piece I kind of wanted to ask about before we wrap up is around that exact component. Like most crypto mainstream adoption components require a huge amount of education on what is crypto, why is crypto, and I think especially nowadays, like there's a fairly negative sentiment in the United States around crypto. How do you bridge that educational gap to someone who maybe they're an Uber driver and they're like, oh, I bought a bunch of crypto. It's all down 80%. Like I want nothing to do with this. But HiveMapper is interesting to me. So, so you're right. I mean, there's a lot of trust that needs to get rebuilt. I'm definitely newer to the crypto industry, but I think the thing that the crypto industry has not done well is suppress the scams. Like I was at Yahoo and Yahoo Search, and you know the number of scams that existed in our index, right? Basically, websites that were total bullshit, total scams, was quite high. But we had really, really good ranking algorithms that made sure that they showed up on maybe page twenty if they ever did. And I think the crypto industry has done itself a massive disservice by not suppressing the things that are obviously scams. There are some bad actors that are harder to like discern that they're really bad actors, but there's some stuff where it's like, guys, this is dumb. This is like totally useless. No, we should not talk about this. It should be suppressed. I mean, look, I, I don't believe in like killing stuff, but it should not become part of the mainstream crypto conversation projects, et cetera. And so now we're definitely feeling the pain associated with that, right? Because we let that shit run wild for way too long. So it is a lot harder. 
And so I think there's a lot of different strategies around this. I mean, you definitely want to focus on the younger generation of Uber drivers and Lyft drivers and all that type of, you know, those type of folks. People are willing to take a little bit more risk, a little bit more open-minded. And then I think other people are also like, and you see this a little bit, let's say they earn a little bit of honey tokens. Then they're, you know, I think they're they're going on to some of these decentralized exchanges and so forth, and then starting to see, okay, can I transfer it for USDC and stuff like that? So they're playing around with that just to make sure that they can move, you know, their honey token or transfer their honey token. So you're seeing a little bit of that experimentation, which is all good. But I do think your broad question is correct, which is like it will take a while to kind of rebuild that trust from the ground up. And I think it'll take folks like like you're doing here talking about these issues openly. Right. It does us no good about like if we don't talk about it, if we don't like say, like, no, this is actually a problem we have to deal with, then we're, we're never going to figure it out. Yeah. And for folks in my position, we are lucky enough that we have time because projects like HiveMapper are really only possible to build on blockchains. I've tried it everywhere else. so I know you're stuck with us. <laughs> Validated is produced by Ray Belli with help from Ross Cohen, Brandon Ector, Amira Valiani, and Ainsley Medford. Engineering by Tyler Morissette.